Let's go once more to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is now given to us and is before our eyes. We ask that you would give us grace as we seek to understand it. You would give us insight. And Lord, that you would enliven our hearts and, and sensitize us to what you have to say. That we would be able to listen carefully and hear your voice. And you would speak to us now through your word uh, and through your Holy Spirit. Would you give us grace in this hour? We pray this in your name. Amen. So we come now to Luke chapter 13, and as you'll notice, we will finish Luke chapter 13 uh, in our time together tonight. Uh, there are so many things that we've drawn out now as themes in the, in the last couple of weeks. And most of those you'll recognize come from Luke 13 and its continuation of the argument that begins really way back in chapter 11 of Luke's gospel. And uh, my ambition tonight is, is partially to bring forward some of those themes again, put them before your eyes, and examine how Luke develops and ultimately concludes these themes here at the end of chapter 13. Uh, picking up a little bit on last week and then uh, examining this week a little bit, uh, I want to put before your eyes the idea of uh, an expansive but exclusive kingdom. An expansive but an exclusive kingdom. Uh, you'll see this uh, at the end of last week when we were coming to the text and we concluded with uh, verse uh, 18 uh, and 21 of chapter 13, uh, where we read what the kingdom of heaven is like, and he describes it as a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, which all the birds were able to take shelter in its branches. And then again in verse 21, when he compares it to leaven, uh, which is hidden in three measures of flour and ultimately will leaven the whole loaf. Here now we come to a different note on what the kingdom of heaven is like. And while it is expansive, truly as we saw last week, uh, we will come to see this week, it is also an exclusive kind of kingdom. And you might be asking the question, well, how do those two things fit together exactly? How can a kingdom be expansive uh, and yet exclusive? How does the teaching of Jesus from uh, verse 18 through 21 jive with the teaching that we've just read about here in these verses? How can it be? Uh, we might say that God is a loving, merciful God who longs to save people from their sins, uh, and yet not everyone who sins is saved from their sins. Is it a question of God's power? Is it a question of God's justice? Uh, is it a question of God's benevolent love towards humanity? These are the kinds of questions texts like this bring to our minds. Now, before we dive into the text and examine its argument, I want to ask you a question, which is, if you were to uh, imagine an empire and a kingdom that would span the whole world, imagine all the nations of the world today and how you would say they could get along, what would be the means by which you would get everyone to agree? How would you get every nation and every kingdom and every people and every, everyone with their different values and systems of belief, how would you get everyone on the same page, in the same empire, in peace with one another? If you think about the monumental task of what it would be like to reconcile the world together, just peoples with one another, given long histories and complicated human relationships and, and all that expands our globe, all the sin that people have committed against one another, how would you go about reconciling those differences? The average uh, way uh, someone in the West would tend to answer that question uh, is by saying something like, well, we just need to all learn to get along with one another. Everyone has differences of opinion, and that's okay. Everyone has different views on the world and life and God and morality, and that's okay. We just need to learn to appreciate and understand 
and get along with the differences that we see in the world around us? Now, on the surface, that actually seems like a very good answer to the question because it answers all the hard parts of the question, how do, will people not be in conflict, without really addressing any of the practical realities on the ground, such as if you have people who value uh, marriage and you have people who value the freedom from marriage, well, how do you get those people to coalesce in a society together and agree on what it means to value marriage rightly? Or if you have people who, let's say, value uh, certain moral principles, such as murder being wrong, and you have other cultures, which we don't interact with much in the Western world, but cultures that value cannibalism, for example, and they insist that this is a part of their religious right. How would you get those cultures on the same page? Tolerance can't actually solve the, the question at hand because tolerance is actually just punting the issue down to some future date where individuals will have to have that conflict and a nation won't. Anytime you think about the diversity of the world and the expansiveness of the globe and the expansiveness of nations and tribes and peoples and languages, and you ask the question, how could all of us get along? How could we all be reconciled? You run into the problem of an expansive kingdom with the only answer seeming to be a kingdom that has a very low bar for entry. Anyone can enter. We tolerate all values. We tolerate all opinions and worldviews. This is the only possible way that a kingdom could be expansive without violating the morality of the people in these various nations and tribes and people groups. Even in the Western world today, you know, our, our country is a, is a pretty interesting microcosm of this because we get split about 50-50 on various political or moral kinds of issues. And then we spend most of our time in the politics and in the media uh, waging war with one another, not, not insisting that tolerance is a high value, but actually insisting that so you need to come over to my side, or you need to come over to my side. So even in the Western world where we value tolerance so highly, it doesn't stop us from persuading other people of uh, their opinion being wrong and our opinion being right. So even in our, let's say, Western empire, we actually share lots of the same core values at the heart. Uh, you still have all these conflicts that arise. Imagine what would happen on a global scale if you tried to do that. And now we come to the problem that the text arises for us which is that Jesus has just finished saying about the kingdom of heaven, what it's like, and it said something to the effect of, it will be this expansive growing kingdom, uh, which will start small and grow expansively such that things can take shade under its reach. And you might naturally think of the question, well, uh, what about the people who don't wanna be in the kingdom? Or what about those who have values different from the kingdom? Will they be permitted to exist in this kingdom? Uh, how exactly is this all gonna work out? And it is to this, end that the question is asked here in verse 22. So Jesus is, is going through now to Jerusalem. Uh, it simply highlights now in the text that he has already set his face towards Jerusalem and we are following his journey to the city. He's on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone says to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Will those who are saved be few? Uh, this is a question uh, we can often ask of the Bible and ask of the, the Christian God. Uh, will those who are saved by this God be a small number of people? If you're a believer and you exist in the world today, uh, sometimes it sure does feel like that's what it's going to be. That those who are saved will be few in number. And it's because we look at the world around us and our own reality and experience and we, can, we conclude rightly, uh, the world is often at odds with God. So how is it that this kingdom could be expansive? The conclusion is, if this kingdom is expansive, uh, those who are saved cannot be many in number. 
And this is the question that is, that is asked now of Jesus. And notice his answer when he says in verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. He flips the question a little bit. In some sense, he addresses the problem that is brought up. Will those who are saved be few? Uh, he answers it, though, in a different kind of way. He doesn't tell them how many people will be saved or the number of people that will be saved. Uh, instead, he flips it and he says something like, uh, don't ask the question, are those who will save be few? You might ask the question, as one commentator has said it, uh, will you be among those who are saved? Will you be among those who are saved within this kingdom? That's an answer that strikes a little bit more personally. It's a little bit less theological, and now it's getting at home. You can imagine a person coming to Jesus and asking him the question, well, what will this kingdom exactly be like before I sign up for it, before I get on board for what you're doing? Uh, what am I signing up for? Uh, what is this kingdom that I'm agreeing to? Uh, will it be an expansive kind of kingdom where many will be saved? And he says uh, to the person who asked the question, uh, why don't you strive to enter through the door which you can enter into the kingdom through? It's a different kind of question. It's, it's a personal question. Questions like that in theology are a lot more difficult for us to answer because they're not out there in the world. They're dealing with our hearts and our reality. And we're going to visit this again in a moment, but I want to finish the words that Jesus says in his answer. He doesn't just say that the door will be narrow, so you need to strive to enter it. He also says in verse 25, When at once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and then you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, he will answer you, saying, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, or you'll begin to plead your case saying, We ate and we drank in your presence, and we taught in your street, or, and you taught in our streets. Uh, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, workers of evil. So the, the way is narrow. And, and also, not only is the way narrow, but uh, you want to be inside the kingdom. This is not uh, uh, being inside the house or outside the house. This is being inside the house uh, or completely shut out and into a place where he says in verse uh, 27, or sorry, in verse uh, 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it is not as though it is a neutral location and a, and a nice location. Uh, it is a safe kingdom location being in through the narrow door and being outside in a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here we're starting to flush out a little bit of what it means to have this kingdom realized in its inclusiveness. What does the inclusiveness of the kingdom look like? It includes all those who have entered through the narrow door, and it excludes all of those who have not entered through that narrow door. As we see there in verse uh, 25, there's this timeliness to it. Because at, at some point in time, the master of the house rises and shuts the door. It is not as though the offer to enter through the door extends for as long as you would hope it extends for. In some sense, it is an urgency to respond to the offer to enter through the door. So not only is the kingdom exclusive, uh, it is also, let's say, urgent to reconcile these differences and ask the question, are you among those who will be in the kingdom? And furthermore, to be outside of the kingdom in verse 28 is not a good situation. It is a situation where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth 
And it'll be worse than just personal suffering in that sense. You will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be cast out. So not only will you be outside of the kingdom, you'll also uh, hear the music of the kingdom and, and see the feasting of the kingdom from your location and, and you won't be able to participate in any of it. You will be on the outside of what was offered to you. Now here we need to understand that when Jesus is speaking, he's speaking primarily to his audience in the first century. And whereas you and I think, well, it's not a big deal for me if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are there or not, to a Jewish person in the first century, to be found in a location at the end of time, away from where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your forefathers, are dwelling and celebrating and feasting, is, is terrible. It would be terrible news. Think about your great hero of the faith. If you're a believer and you have someone who you look up to as a Christian, who is, who is a virtue of what you want to be like in your Christian life, someone who's a great model of what you would like to be, and you imagine eternity and, sit, and being situated in a place where you are outside, and worse than that, you're seeing them inside celebrating, and you have fallen short of that picture of a, of a good Christian. Or in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's case, a true Israelite, the patriarchs of the faith. You celebrate away from them, or you are, you are cast out away from where they're celebrating. This would be a, a terrible, dire, and condemning situation, because not only at that point would you not be in the kingdom, uh, you would be found to be outside of the trajectory of the Israelite nation. You'd be cut off from your own people. For the Jewish people, this is a high cost to be cut off from their own nation. But worse still, not only will Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob be there and you will be cast out, but other people, verse 29, and people from the east and the west and the north and the south, they will come in and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. Gentiles and people who the kingdom is not the inheritance of will come and feast in the kingdom uh, because you are outside and there's room at the table for them. So he, Jesus is, in some sense, driving home the urgency, driving home the necessity, and driving home, uh, in what sense will the kingdom be expansive if the Jewish people reject this kingdom? It couldn't, it couldn't be all that big uh, because we're rejecting it. A whole host of us are rejecting this kingdom. It has to be small, right? He says, actually, no, no, no. I can pick people from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation, bring them into this banquet to feast with me in this kingdom. So now here comes the, the full scope of this, this text before us, at least this part of it, where we see Jesus drawing intention, how the kingdom can be expansive and a wonderful celebration, and yet exclusive in that it's a narrow door entry. Notice that the narrow door is guarded by the Lord of the kingdom. The narrow door is guarded by the Lord of the kingdom. Verse 25, the master of the house, who we have been introduced previously to in parables, is kind of the end-all, be-all person who uh, you don't want to be brought before, you don't want to be punished by. He's the one who observes all that happens in the house. In verse 25, the master of the house is the one who rises and shuts the door. He is the one who can open and close the door. No one knocking on the outside can reopen that door once it's been closed. It is the master of the house who has opened the door, who has set its parameters, who guards its entry, and who ultimately can shut that door as well and forbid entry through it. If you think about this in, in our context, God has, in his word, told us how we ought to enter the kingdom through the narrow door. 
He has not left that as a question which we need to search through all 66 books to possibly find pieces to tie together. He's made it headline news throughout all the Bible. That to enter through the kingdom is to enter through the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the covenant people, under the Davidic king, ultimately in through the Messiah. If you are found in him, you are in the kingdom. If he is your king, you're in the kingdom. But if he is not your king, you cannot be in that kingdom. So the door is narrow in the sense that there's only one king who rules over this kingdom. And as an opportunity, you can swear allegiance to the king, bow before him and, and be obedient to his voice, or you can reject his rule. And if you reject his rule, uh, well, there's no other doors to this house. It's not like there's 20 different ways to get to heaven. Uh, there is this one way to get to heaven. It is a narrow door. Now, that does not imply that a narrow door means a tiny house. The house could be massive. The kingdom could be expansive. All that this text is saying is that there's only one way to enter into the kingdom. And that would be through the blood of Jesus Christ, believing in his name by faith for the forgiveness of your sins. You cannot enter the kingdom by pleading innocence and saying, uh, Lord, I knew what you required because it was spoken of in your word, but I tried my best and I was nice to my neighbor and I generally had benevolent feelings towards Jesus, but I didn't worship him as Lord nor believe on him for the forgiveness of sins. Will you accept me? The door is not that broad. It's a narrow door. And it's narrow for a reason. It is, it is of necessity narrow. If you want the kingdom to be of a certain quality or of a certain caliber of glory and enjoyment, the door must be narrow. Think about the most exclusive locations in the world. They're not places any tourist can just go to and travel to. They're not places just anyone can get to by their own means and own. The, the most beautiful places in the world are invitation only need to know kind of things. Where you go to a massive house and they're gonna card you at the door because they're just not gonna let anyone in here. If you were in high school and you're going to a house party, they'll let anyone in through the door. That's not the kind of place that the kingdom is like. The kingdom is different than that. You have to be known, you have to be invited, and you have to be able to enter through the only means of entry. So in, in a sense, to, to even guard the quality of the kingdom, the door must be narrow. But more so, the door must be narrow because as Christ makes clear elsewhere in scripture, the door is narrow because uh, he is the only one who actually makes entry to the kingdom possible. The door cannot be expansive in the sense that anyone can get in no matter what they've done in their life because God is a holy God and he demands perfection of anyone who would be part of his kingdom. So the only way to be in that kingdom is to be perfect. And the only way for a human being to be perfect is either to perfectly obey the law of God from their birth, or since we are all born in Adam, we must be found in someone else who can be our new head and who can merit for us righteousness that we cannot earn for ourselves. It is the only way into the kingdom. Now, why would that narrowness be good news? It's good news because there is a way into the kingdom. The alternative to a narrow door is no door at all. 
What scripture makes clear is the alternative to the narrow door is not this expansive door and that God has somehow narrowed the options. The, the alternative to the narrow door is just a, a walled off kingdom that no human could enter into. It is actually by God's grace that the door has been created in the first place, that there is even access to God. How do we have access to God? Well, John in his gospel makes clear God comes to us to reveal himself to us, to love us. This is abundantly clear in scripture where we see that it is not humans who move to God to make themselves right with him, but it's actually God who goes through the garden and calls to Adam and who mercifully atones for their sins and covers them with the blood of an animal and who goes to Abraham and calls him out of the pagan land and who goes to Moses and gets him to call the people out of a slavery and bondage. It is God who is the mover to initiate access to the kingdom and so it is with the, the son. He is the one who initiates access to the kingdom. So the alternative is not us finding a door that's another way in. The alternative is no door at all. So the narrow door is good news in the sense that there is access. There is access to God, but it is not a, an all-encompassing access. We can go in any way we'd like. It is access only through the son, only through him. So what part do we play, let's say, within this process? Well, Jesus says in verse 24 to the man who asked the question, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive. Now, that language might sound a little works-based. If you're a Protestant, you might recoil at such language, but Jesus says it here. And it's not language that is unfamiliar to the text of Scripture. In fact, if you would be pleased to turn to 2 Peter with me, you'll find a very similar exhortation. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm or strive to make sure of your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now what Peter has just finished enumerating to the people, what he's just finished uh, listing out, is all the ways in which God has loved his people, saved his people, and called his people to obedience. And then he turns and he says to them, and this is Christians in the New Testament, where he says, therefore, strive to enter and endure to the end so that you might be found in the kingdom. As Christians, we are exhorted often in scripture to be people who are obedient to the word of God, who love his law and who strive to obey him. It is this kind of striving and not a striving that merits entrance into the kingdom that is discussed here in the text. Striving to enter through the narrow door is not striving to access the door. Striving to enter through the narrow door is simply seizing hold of the means by which God has provided for us to enter through the narrow door, which is seizing hold of Christ and his righteousness and necessitating obedience and grace through his spirit to love him and obey him and serve him. It is not works-based righteousness to pursue God and pray for mercy and for grace and for forgiveness and to read his word and to love him and to seek to obey him. That is not works-based or legalistic. That is simply what we are called to do as Christians. The call to believers is to strive to enter. 
Now, how we strive is different than how the world strives. The world would strive by accessing obedience from their God, whether that be corporate America or a boss or a relationship, or if you, uh, they serve some other God, it would be striving to merit obedience and favor from that God. In the, in the text of scripture, we are told to strive because God has loved us and he's given us a means by which we ought to access him. And he's provided for us his spirit so that we can walk in those ways. This is why prayer is so essential to the Christian life. Prayer is the sustenance which we access God and we plead for him to work in us. As Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is not work out your salvation because it is you who works before God to merit your salvation. It is God who works in you as you strive. Now, if you want to try to spread out all the differences and how exactly that works, uh, I would encourage you to do that. But the text of scripture makes clear there's this both, there's this truth that God is the one who works and we are the ones who strive and there is no conflict there. It is a mystery and there is no conflict. So here we are in the text where Jesus is encouraging us to strive or his audience to strive and as we are reading it now, we are being encouraged as the readers of Luke's gospel to strive. Because the consequence is real. To be found outside of the kingdom is not a comfortable situation. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is a direct reference to what was considered in the first century the Jewish afterlife where you wouldn't want to go. We would call that hell. It's a bit anachronistic to say that the Jews believed in hell in the exact same way that we as Christians believed in hell. But the Jews certainly had a conception of an afterlife and a location within that that would be less than favorable outside of the good benevolent presence of God's face and under the presence of his wrath being cut off from him and under the curse. So the Jewish uh, rabbis in this day have conceived of these realities, that there's an afterlife that is benevolent and good, a blessed place under the kingdom of God. And there's an afterlife which is, let's say, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that weeping and gnashing of teeth falls on us because it's a, it's a figure of speech which we don't jive with well. It doesn't really mean much to us. But the point is, much suffering. It is a place of much suffering, much pain, much vexation, great tribulation. It's not the kind of place you'd, you'd want to go to. Scripture makes clear all throughout the text that hell is not the kind of place that you want to be found in. And yet, it is the kind of place that people, although knowing it exists, will willingly go to rather than serve the king. This is the sad reality that in just a few verses, Jesus is going to warn his hearers to enter through the narrow door, and then he's going to have to turn around because his hearers are still rejecting him and say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is true even in our day. People have heard the gospel. They've heard of salvation. They've heard of hell. And the solutions that exist are, one, to say, no such place exists, and I don't fear God. Or to say that if such a place exists, I'd rather go there than serve a kind of God who would send people there. Something that would affect. And hell is a real reality in scripture. And it's not something that as Christians we rejoice in or delight in. But it's the kind of place we understand as a necessary consequence to God's holiness. If there's a narrow door and a glorious kingdom, 
and we know that not all people will enter into the kingdom, uh, what is left for those who are outside the kingdom? Humans are created as eternal beings, meaning we have a start, uh, but we don't quite have an end. We're created with an everlasting body and soul. And we are told that all will be resurrected on the last day for judgment. And so this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth is not some vain imagination or a place that we can experience here on earth. I know often we think about, uh, we hear the term hell on earth or things like that. Hell is not the kind of thing you can experience on earth. The suffering just can't compare. And if hell were not a reality, I, I would assure you Paul would be a lot less urgent in his evangelism in Acts. Being beaten within an inch of his life and going back to the same people to plead with them to hear the cry of the kingdom. I fear that in our attempt in the West to erase hell has, has modeled perfectly our attempt in the West to lower the need for evangelism and lower the need to call people to salvation. As we diminish the reality of hell, we have simultaneously found excuse for ourselves to not feel a burden to evangelize to the lost people who we encounter. We say things like, the door will be expansive, God is a loving God. So these realities aren't all that burdensome. And yet, none of that is true from Scripture. They're simply things that we would tell ourselves to assuage our fears and to uh, comfort our own disobedience, really. Hell is real. And for a Jewish persons, described as the kind of place you wouldn't want to go because the people who you look up to most, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, will be feasting there in the kingdom, and you will be outside, not able to taste it. Now, there's more to say on the reality of the afterlife. I will save most of the rest of that for Luke 16, when there's a much longer discussion on the, the reality of the afterlife and the Jewish conception of it. But for now, we must go on. Where Jesus says, that people will come from the east and the west, the north and the south. They will recline at the table of the kingdom of God. He's saying here that the kingdom, in its inception, in its promise, in its culmination, its expansive reach, will reach people who it was not initially intended for. It's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. As the gospel goes forth to all nations. We see this fulfillment in the book of Acts. Where people from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria... Oh, and people from Asia Minor are coming to faith, and Ethiopia are coming to faith, who have no knowledge of God, no covenant relationship with him, and are yet being grafted in to his kingdom. It's an expansive kind of kingdom. And yet, for even those who it is expansively including, it still has that narrow door of entry. Belief by faith in the Son of God. And here then comes the reversal in verse 30. And behold, of this kingdom, the Jewish people who receive it and those who are grafted into it, behold, some of those who are last will be first and some of who are first will be last. The point, the kingdom, as Jesus has said elsewhere, it goes to the humble, the poor, the downtrodden, the weary, those who we look at in this life and we despise and we look down on. It is those kinds of people who are first in the kingdom of God, and it's the kind of people who have large churches and large followings and large influence that we look up to in this world who often will be found in the end to be rather impoverished in the kingdom because much of their labor was posturing. That is a kind of striking reality that we see. And it's then that we turn to the conclusion of these verses or in the last couple sections there from verse 31 to verse 35 where we have a different account, a different event 
And yet at the same time, it's intimately related with what we just read. At that very hour, so as Jesus is dialoguing, some Pharisees came to him and say, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Now consider this. The Pharisees have been posed to us in Luke's gospel as the kind of people who don't have Jesus' best interest at heart. So this is not to be taken as the Pharisees looking out for Jesus and warning him of Herod coming to kill him. It is more than likely the case that the Pharisees are trying to scare Jesus away from coming to Jerusalem. The Pharisees have rejected him. They've called him out. All the religious leaders in Luke's gospel have been kind of opposed to Jesus. And here they come essentially warning him that Herod wants to kill him. And Jesus' response is striking in verse 32. Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons. I perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. When he says that I must go my way, he's saying it is necessary for me to go this way. And him, in the confidence of God and the assurance of the Spirit, is saying something to the effect of, it's actually not possible for me to be killed outside of Jerusalem. I, I can't. I can't actually die outside of Jerusalem because God in his providence has told me I'm going to Jerusalem. That is my end point. That's where I finish my course. And nothing's going to deter me from that. This is a certain comfort in, I think, the sovereignty of God that Jesus models for us. Even as the second person of the Trinity from all eternity here models in his humanity trusting God's sovereignty. And I think we in our Christian lives should have such a trust in the providence of God working out in our lives. We should say things like, I don't care if I testify to something the world won't approve of or I lose my job uh, because I know that this is obedience to God. I know this is what obedience looks like. This is what I'm called to and I don't care what it costs me. Jesus has even more assurance. He actually knows that he's going to die in Jerusalem and so he's going there anyway. So his assurance might be different than ours, but he models for us trust and confidence in the assurance of God. And here now he's turned to Jerusalem. He said it's necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. He's not going to be deterred by any threats of death from Herod or any other kingly power. And here he looks, as it were, over the city of Jerusalem. And he says these words in verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have longed to gather you together as a hen would gather her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here is a lament over Jerusalem, and the lament, or the crying over Jerusalem, follows his now final rejection, really, by the Pharisees. Now, this is not the last time that Jesus is going to conflict with the Pharisees, but for all intents and purposes in this thought process in Luke's gospel, He's come to the culmination of the question which we've been asking. Will the barren tree bear fruit? Is there any hope for it? No, no, no. And woe to the tree and how I would have loved to, for it to bear fruit. So here Jesus, you see his heart posture towards the city. If you read these words, you cannot come to the conclusion that when Jesus punishes the city that he does so out of spite or out of hatred or out of this unjustified wrath, that he's some vindictive kind of deity. He's the kind of God who loves his people so much that he would manifest himself in the flesh and even offer himself up to death by them before he would come in judgment upon them. 
There's no other god in the entire ancient world who's like that. Other gods are petty. They don't tell you what they demand. They don't tell you what's required of you. They expect you then to serve them faithfully, obey them, and trust that in the end they'll somehow have your benevolent interests in mind. Consider Islam or any other religion that has this kind of standard where God's standard is some vague, arbitrary thing that we ought to render obedience towards, but we're not quite sure where the cutoff is. And here comes Jesus, knowing his people have fallen short of whatever the standard is, his standard as he lays out in his law. He's come to save them. He's faced rejection by them. He goes to them again and again and again. Here, even in these sections, pleading with them several times in, a, in even a chapter, and yet finding that he is still cast out and rejected by his people. And he mourns over them. Now, to, to underscore the importance of the rejection that God has faced by his people, I think it's important to understand that the New Testament takes place in the context of the rest of the Old Testament. And the rest of the Old Testament has this massive arc and storyline where God is showing mercy to his people who are yet rebelling against him still. To give you just a snapshot of that, I want to look at one of the prophets, Jeremiah in chapter 7. If you've ever thought about God, especially as he views you and your sin, I would encourage you to think about God more in terms of his patience towards you than in terms of his judgment over you. Because his patience is really the thing that jumps off the page as a dominant emphasis of who he is and what he's like. Jeremiah chapter 7. And I'll be reading from verse 23. God has just condemned the Israelites and said, I didn't demand all this outward external worship. And here he says in verse 23, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil hearts and they went backward and not forward. Now, what time period is he referencing? In verse 25, he tells us, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day. So from the moment I started saving them till right now, we're talking about hundreds of years later, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. You get the point. God is persistent in his pursuit of Israel. He is unrelenting. Prophet after prophet has died in the effort of God to save his people. Answering the call saying, here I am, Lord, send me only to go to their death. And God sends prophet after prophet to his people. The point is, God is not waiting for the first chance to cut Israel off from the inheritance. Verse 26, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck and they did worse than their fathers. Verse 27, so what is the message to Jeremiah? So you shall speak all these words to them. This is Jeremiah at the start of his ministry but they will not listen to you. You will call to them, but they will not answer you. And you will say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. And here's the condemnation. Cut off your hair, cast it away, raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. And then this verse in verse 34 I will silence the cities of Judah 
in the streets of Jerusalem. I will silence the voice of myrrh and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land will become a waste. Here is what Jesus is alluding to or referencing. When Jerusalem rejects Jesus, they don't actually just reject him for 30 years or so, and that causes their ultimate downfall. They've been in the process of actively rejecting God for centuries now. And this is not rejecting God who came to them in neutrality. This is the God who saved them, rescued them, revived them, breathed life into them, blessed them, kept them, sustained them, and poured out his mercy upon them and patiently waited for them to return back to him. And this is the culmination, Jesus being the final prophet sent to them, who laments, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and concludes his lament by saying, verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken, or your land is laid waste. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this verse, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's an allusion to a psalm which recalls the people crying out to the Messianic king to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes on behalf of God. Now consider the irony with what Jesus is saying, where these people are going to say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and yet they're rejecting the very one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is the one who comes in the name of the Lord in Luke's gospel, and he's the one who's rejected in Luke's gospel. And so these same people that are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're the same people who are about to be judged by Jesus. Now, it's, there's hotly debated this, I just want you to know, this text is debated. What does it mean? When does it come to fulfillment? I think the best sense in Luke's gospel is that this verse is fulfilled when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey on the day when the people are throwing palm branches before him and worshiping him and saying, blessed be you, son of David. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and yet those same people are the ones who are going to be in the city when it's cut off. Jesus' point is pretty clear. In the last week of his life, he comes to Jerusalem as they receive him saying, blessed is he who comes, and yet their conclusion is going to be they're actually not receiving him really at all. They're just receiving him at face value, without any kind of authenticity or, or care. So the irony here in the verse is that it's actually a reversal of what's intended in the psalm. It's not a people who are going to say blessed from an authentic heart posture. It's a people who are going to say blessed with an overt external posturing, a performance, but not a conversion. And this marks the kind of obedience that Jeremiah, which the passage we just read, is condemning of the people. An external posturing obedience without an internal heart obedience. And this is going to characterize Jerusalem from beginning to end, from Jeremiah to Jesus, culminating in their destruction. Now, these words are hard, and you might say, well, if this all has to do with the Jewish people, uh, what does this have to do with us, who stand not under the Jewish era, not under the Jewish age? Uh, we are outside of this time. We have Jesus resurrected, not coming in condemnation. But we do have Jesus coming again. Because we're told in Scripture, he will come again, and he will come to judge all the earth in one final judgment where he will resurrect all who have lived past, present, and who are to live. All who have ever lived, he will resurrect them with bodies, and he at that moment will judge the living and the dead, and he will judge them and sift them, wheat from the tares, those who are in the kingdom from those who are not in the kingdom. And at that moment in time, it won't do any good to say things like, well, Jesus, I had heard of you, I'd heard about you, 
I even called you blessed and prayed to you, things like that. The point is at that moment, when the, when the gavel is struck, when the door is closed, the only way to have entered is to have entered through Christ. That is the standard of entry. That is the standard of admission. So here we are in the text, Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. And we cannot conclude, like we often do of God in the Western church, things like God is wrathful, vindictive, and petty. He's, if, he's, he's anything but that. In the text of scripture, he is patient, loving, merciful, steadfast. Those words more accurately describe who God is. And that's who he is in your life as well. When he looks at you and your imperfect obedience and your sin and your constant rebellion, even as a Christian in his word, where, where you, don't, you don't look at God and love him, you don't look at God's call to obedience and, and love to obey, you actually like to disobey. You take pleasure and delight in that kind of thing. Even in that, God doesn't look at you and wait to judge you. He's not excited to punish his people. The tone of scripture is that God is a slow, patient God, which for his people means a lot of good things, particularly that we experience his mercy even in our rebellion as believers. And it is his kindness that is cause for us to go to repentance. His kindness is what stirs our hearts to guilt, conviction, and repentance. It is, it is his mercy that drives us back to his throne and plead with him for yet another dose of grace and forgiveness. And he is pleased to give it. If you're a Christian, you need to know that about the God that you serve. That he is the kind of God who you can go to with anything, any sin that you are carrying. There is nothing that is too great for him. There is nothing that is beyond him. Every sin that you have ever committed, every sin that you have hesitated to confess before God, he is quick to forgive it. He is a merciful God who can suffer with his people for centuries long. He can suffer with you for a couple of decades. This is the character of our God. This is what he is like. And if you are outside of him, if you don't know Christ and you don't know the Father, then you need to know this is his heart posture towards you as well. He's a merciful God. He's a loving God. And he's the kind of God who looks at you in all of the rebellion of your life and says, but I'd still love to take you. That does not come without a, a heed of urgency, as you should feel in the text. An urgency that the door will one day be shut. There will be a time when the door is closed and when the tree is cut down. But the point of the text is to emphasize his patience between now and then. That as you live your life, and as you experience your life on this earth, your relation to God is one of experiencing his patience. That is until the day that the door is shut. So I don't mean to minimize the day of final judgment, but I need, to know, I need you to know that that is not yet. That day is not now. And while you are still under the sound of my voice and still under the hearing of God's word, while you still have time to repent, repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For he is a good God, who benevolently blesses his people, who has an expansive kingdom in which you can take shelter in, and which he encourages you, and I encourage you, to take shelter in. There is no other safe place. There is no other firm foundation. It is only Christ. 
He is the only solid rock on which we can stand. And that is true yesterday, today, and Christian, it will be true for you on Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning and Thursday, all throughout the rest of the week. Because God is a long-suffering, pursuing God who sends his prophets day after day to his rebellious people and he ministers his spirit and his word to his covenant people day after day after day, pursuing their hearts, calling them to himself, and pouring out his blessings upon them. Let's worship this God together. Lord, you are an awesome God. You are faithful beyond measure, beyond even our ability to understand time. Lord, centuries seem beyond my scope of understanding given my 20-some years of life. And yet you, Lord, are from everlasting to everlasting. And what I, I, what I see as massive patience on your part is, is for you, for you, but just who you are and your character. Lord, I pray that you would allow me to see that more clearly by your spirit, that you would allow us to see that more clearly in your word, in our experience in life, by your grace poured out to us, that we would know you in your love and your affection towards us, that we would see you as a good God because you are a good God. We pray this in your name. Amen.